Okay, as promised in my last sermon this week, we will be looking at the opposite of the futile life of the mind. And our text is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 24. If you could please turn there now. Our story that most of us are familiar with is the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was written by the Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson. And uh, the work is commonly associated with quite a rare mental condition that lay people call a split personality, where within the same person there exists more than one distinct personality. And in the case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, of course, there were two with completely opposite states of morality, one apparently good and the other evil. Although we might not have read this book, and I haven't personally read it, it has nonetheless become part of our daily language with the phrase Jekyll and Hyde coming to mean a person who is vastly different in moral character from one situation to the next. In many ways, the plot is relevant to what we will study today. Dr. Jekyll was a clever fellow who devised a potion that causes him to change into Mr. Hyde. His intention is positive because he is seeking to separate his good side from his dark impulses so that for some periods of time he will be completely good. Unfortunately, the process is flawed and although he does create a second evil identity, it doesn't work out and make the first completely good. And worse, as time goes by, he begins to change even without the potion and ends up stuck as the evil Dr. Mr. Hyde. I suspect that many of us feel like Jekyll and Hyde in our daily Christian walk because we waver between those good virtuous feelings and another place where it seems like all we can ever do is just sin and sin and sin. And in between we desperately do good things to try to right those wrongs and make us feel good again and close to God. We echo Paul when he says in Romans, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you sometimes feel like that? Well, I certainly do. The thing is that we often forget the second part of that cry of Paul's in verse 25, where we see the answer, our release from this terrible and wasteful bondage. I thank God Our deliverance comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we're going to learn some more about this today. Through Christ, we have no need to feel that we are desperately flopping between these states of Jekyll and Hyde and that we are destined to do so for the rest of our lives because one of them has been done away with, dispensed with entirely. So let's read our passage, Ephesians 4. Verses 20 to 24. And I'm going to start reading in verse 17 just to to keep the sense. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt 
according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I pray that the Lord would bless these words and make them real to all of us in our lives. The first question we can address is, who is Paul talking to? Oh, in verse 20 he says, but you have not so learned Christ. And who must have learned Christ but Christians? He is talking directly to Christians, and of course that means that what he says is true for all those who love the Lord Jesus as Saviour. And I pray that that includes everyone who is here today. This isn't a message for somebody else. You and I must accept that this is meant specifically for us. It is written to and about us. So perhaps we should pay attention. What we hear is an emphatic statement. You have not. And this is the kind of not that means absolutely not. There are times that we hear this word and for various reasons, which often have to do with levels of present comfort and just plain laziness, convince ourselves that the word not is intended for someone else and therefore we are excused. Not. Absolutely not. We can never imagine that we have learned Christ or are in Christ if we believe that we must continue to glory in the futility of the mind. It is either Christ or the mind. There isn't any compromise or halfway point. We must not drift back into our unregenerate ways of thinking. A godly life and a worldly life cannot be lived in the same space. And if we should hear anybody who professes to be a Christian, who says that Christians don't have to give up anything or change their ways when they find salvation, then we can be completely sure that what we are hearing is error. We have not so learned Christ. Where does that learning come from? Well, (laughs) that's a bit obvious, isn't it? It comes from Christ, we read, from hearing him and from him teaching us. We have not so learned Boris or Sally, or for that matter Aristotle or Plato. I say it's obvious, but then if we're honest, I'd say many of us would have to confess to giving too high regard to some earthly sources. The fact is that no matter or how clever or wise, there is no human who has anything to offer us in the matter of spiritual instruction outside of what we can read in Scripture. Through the words of the Bible, which are God's words, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, who is always at our side, we are expected to hear and be taught. And it's no coincidence that these two words are together, because hearing does not necessarily result in teaching. There are many times when what is spoken or shown might just be a noise for a time that passes by with no lasting effect. What Paul is writing about here, though, is something that happens when what is heard penetrates the mind and the heart. The evidence of effective hearing is that what is learned cannot stay there inside. It must burst out and be visible on the outside to show the completion of the teaching process. And this is exactly what the Greek word used here for learn means. It it conveys a basic meaning of applying one's mind to something which produces an external effect. 
And we might learn through instruction. We might learn through asking questions. We might learn through doing stuff or having done stuff for ages. Or maybe by just churning away through something we don't understand until we get to, to know it. The method doesn't matter, but the idea is to genuinely understand and accept a teaching as true and then to apply it to one's life. There is an important matter of timing here. It's very easy to read this verse about learning Christ and imagine that it is talking about something that takes quite a long while. But actually Paul is not describing an ongoing process, although that will come along in the following verses. It is true that we will discover more and more about Jesus as we go along in life, but that's a different matter. This particular learning that we read of here is a one-off event and that happens at the moment of justification at which point we spiritually see the whole picture at once. I'm sure that all of us have had one of those, or at least one, I hope more than one, those eureka moments. One where suddenly a thing just emerges from the cloud in your mind and it becomes clear and understandable. Well, That's what we're talking about here, isn't it? There was a time for most of us when we couldn't comprehend a thing about God. None of it made any sense. And then at that special instant when we took Jesus as Lord, it all just popped into focus. I was once blind, but now I see. Now I know why I exist and how I came to be. Now I know what I was intended for. Now I know who God is and what my relationship is to him. This is how we have learned Christ. Now there's a bit of theological debate at this point why there is this change in names from Christ in verse 20 to Jesus in verse 21. And I don't want to go into that because there doesn't seem to be any strong evidence for any argument as to why this may be so. And I'll tell you very honestly that I couldn't understand about 90% of what I was reading in these arguments anyway. But none of this is going to edify us. What is important is that in Jesus, as equally as in Christ, we will hear and be taught truth. That's what it's about, isn't it? What is truth, you might ask? Well, it's all Relative, we may hear. Everyone has a right to their own truth. Oh, really? How would that work? What would happen if my truth contradicted yours and I had more power than you? Hmm, I wonder. Unfortunately, too, the very word has become fragile because as well as these attacks on the concept of truth, the word is now just too often used to describe things that are obviously not true, with the result that even when somebody swears on their mother's grave that what they are saying is true, we will still not be convinced. What we read here, though, is not like that at all. The Greek word used literally means non-concealment. It's used to speak of the real state of affairs and of things that have certainty and force. Nothing is hidden. Everything is open for examination, and so there is no space for any differences in understanding to exist. What you see is exactly what you get. 
Now, this kind of truth only exists when there is no difference between what is said and what really exists. One place we will definitely find the state must be the substance of Jesus, because he is fully God. We know that some of the aspects of God's character are that he never lies and he never changes. He created reality and as such he also created and he defines truth. Now that might sound like a bit of an esoteric idea, but it's actually a very important concept for all Christians because it is the foundation of our hope. If God wasn't like that, we would be living with a very scary deity indeed and we would have no hope at all because an unpredictable God might say, yes, today you are saved, but tomorrow I've changed my mind because someone has annoyed me and now you're all condemned. But with the God we know, this will never be. We can trust him absolutely to do what he says he will to be truthful, and therefore we can have a full and dependable hope. Unfortunately, the ownership of this truth for many believers is subject to perspective, because as God looks at a Christian, he sees the truth, a perfect, forgiven, redeemed soul, made that way by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The old man is gone. From where we sit, however, while we can see the example of what that ought to look like in the person of Jesus, we're often very distracted from making that real in our daily lives by our old selves, the sinner. The old man hide, clings on in our minds. But there is no justification whatsoever for allowing this stalemate to persist. Our call then is to close that gap between what God sees and what we see. And as we read, we are to put off concerning our former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts. And there are two steps here. The first step to putting off the old man is accepting that he really has been put off, permanently, in a heavenly act of instant conversion. In the most important sense, this is true because God has reconciled us to him. He did it once and he did it perfectly. So there is no need for any top-ups or reworks. And how did that happen? Well, the basic elements are these. Every human is a sinner and will continue to sin. Sin is doing things that are against God's laws. He hates sin and cannot tolerate it in any way. And since every human carries this stain, we are separated. In fact, we are at war with our Creator. This state was never God's intention. He created humans to exist in a direct and open relationship with Him. But we broke that union by our own choice when we chose to sin back in the Garden of Eden. And in doing so, we created a debt of punishment that had to be paid. And we carry on adding to that debt every day as we continue to sin. This means that we were and are eternally condemned to hell away from God. There is absolutely nothing any human can do to earn or justify reconciliation. No amount of prayer or good works or meditation 
or self-denial or self-punishment or anything will make even the very tiniest amount of difference. A broken pot cannot mend itself. Now, God's attitude may seem harsh from a human perspective, but after all, he made us and he made the rules. We cannot question or negotiate our way around them. Scripture tells us that humans are made in God's image. We have complex characters, and so does he. Although he is holy and righteous and therefore cannot abide sin, he is also loving and gracious in a way that is so great that it is very difficult for us to understand it. So he lovingly acted to repair the damage that humans had caused, to pay that debt of sin, and that means the sin of every single human who has or who will ever live. Think about that. And so he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to be punished for our sakes and to pay our debt. And by doing this, he opened the way for all humans who will repent of their sins confess Jesus as their Lord and commit to living life from there forward according to God's rules to spend eternal life with him. There is no other way for this to be possible. This is the good news of the gospel. If you have heard it for the first time, or maybe not even for the first time, if you have not made that commitment, how will you respond? Will you continue in your sin, content with your old man who is corrupt? Or will you repent and confess Jesus as Lord and then put on that new man who was created according to God? Heaven or hell? For eternity? You have a choice. What will it be? The second step of putting off the old man is a process of continuous daily conversion. Now, just in case anyone has confused this language of putting off with the idea of delaying an action, as I will put off coming to see you until I've got my new car, let me share with you the way this Greek word is translated in some other versions of the Bible. The Amplified Version says, Strip yourselves of your former nature. Put off and discard your old, unrenewed self. The New American Standard Bible talks about laying aside the old self. And the New Living Testament says, throw off, throw off your old evil nature and your former way of life. And I think these translations show where this is going. The Greek word which is used for lay aside is one that implies a complete break from a former association. It is a compound word. The second part, which literally means to put or take something away from its normal location and put it out of the way. So we will not be leaving that old man in a handy place to pick up when it looks like he might be useful. He is in fact useless because he is corrupt and grows more so with time. So that without God's intervention, as I've just discussed, His only effect will be condemnation and death, a state of hopelessness. Friends, why would we want to keep him? And yet we do. It doesn't make sense. 
But that old man keeps walking and talking, even though he has been done away with once and for all by God. And this is why we must keep putting him off for the rest of our lives in every instance that we encounter him. And let us never ever think that maybe a haircut and a shave will tie him up enough to be acceptable. Because he never will be. He is ever and always corrupt. The old man will never improve himself. The old man will never reform. He is incorrigible. He is utterly depraved and will always be so. Thanks be to God that when a person is saved, the old man is not changed. And the old man is not transformed. He is erased. How did God do this? Romans 6, 6 directly answers this. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Did you hear that? Our old man was crucified with Jesus on the cross and with him went our condemnation and separation from the Lord. Praise God! We are free. We are no longer slaves to sin and we should no longer live like slaves. But we still do. Why? When Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, They were officially free from their many years of servitude, but some of them went on living as if they were still slaves. A president's proclamation gave them legal standing as free citizens. It was a done deal. They were no longer slaves. But out of habit and way of thinking, many of these poor people still lived like slaves. To take hold of their freedom, they had to live in accordance with the new facts. When they were tempted to think like a slave, they needed to say, No, the truth is that I am now a free man. They needed to take hold of and live that truth into their daily experience. And so do we. In verse 23, Paul tells us how we can start to do this as Christians. We must be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We may cast off that old man, but Doing so is going to leave an empty space that must be filled. There must be something there to replace the old or we will just be like mindless zombies. Because basically we're talking about our character here. I mean, never mind your gumbies. Where would you be without your personality? When we examine the word used for renew, it supports the idea of complete change rather than just a restoration job. There are two words that are commonly used for new in the New Testament and the first is used to describe a quality that never existed before but in the sense of modifying, changing it rather than replacing it. The second one is neos which is the one used here as a root word and it describes something that recently came into existence and only for a short time and so it causes something to become new and different and better. In other words, a new beginning in time to renew what is old or to 
refresh and reinvigorate a tired being. So we get this idea of our mind being continuously made new and improved in holiness, which is absolutely opposite of the old man who is continually being more and more corrupt. It is a complete about face and thinking, a change from mental impurity to holy-mindedness. The Holy Spirit of God influences the thought processes of believers so that they begin more and more to reason from God's viewpoint. But this is not the finish of the process because Paul goes on to say that we must also put on the new man that was created according to God in true, true righteousness and holiness. As I read this, it occurred to me that this threefold instruction of putting off, renewing and putting on is actually quite familiar to me because it's something I do on a very regular basis. During the working day, I get hot and sweaty and my clothes get covered in grease or dust or tiny bits of metal from grinding. I grow corrupt and unpleasant. Ask my wife. When I get home, I can't wait to jump into the shower and get clean. That's like renewing my mind. But I can't just carry on from there because no one wants to see me running around naked. And I need protection from the cold or the sun or whatever. And so I put on new clean clothes. The new man, so to speak. This is something I will do every day. And it isn't that inconsistent with what we're talking about, is it? Let's... Talk about this new man for a bit. Where will, where will we know what he does in us? Well, here's the basic stuff of what believers now are in the new covenant with Christ. What Christians are, are made of. This godly rebirth gives us the potential to practice daily the putting off of those filthy rags of darkness and putting on righteous deeds of the light by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside us. Before we were saved, sin was our master, and we had no power to say no. However, as those who have become a new man in Christ, we have been granted the power of righteous choice and can choose not to commit sin. Instead, we can practice saying yes to Jesus, so that it becomes more usual to be able to say no to the flesh and its strong desires to please itself. This is the place where we start to live out our salvation. Our old self died in Christ, and now the new self lives in Christ. And in that glorious state, we must strive to put off remaining sinful deeds and be being continually renewed into the Christ-likeness to which we are called. Our new self is not passive and content to live the old way, but active and always working to fit the whole potential of who we were created in Christ to be. Once it was who we were that was important, but now it is whose we are that is important. Now, you might right, rightly say that this is all very well, but what does this, all this stuff like putting off old men and renewing your mind actually mean? What can I practically do? Well, we have a bit of time left, so let's spend some time figuring that out. It seems to me that a lot of this putting on and putting off stuff 
is fundamentally about making the right choices. But before we start choosing anything, I think it's just plain good sense to do some research. Now, after all, discovering by experiment that holding on to a match too long hurts, it's not really that clever. It makes a great deal of sense to collect information beforehand. Second Peter 1 3 reads, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Do you want to become a godly person? Nobody does. It's a bit distressing. Do you want to become a godly person? Thank you. Then you must have knowledge of God. This is a path that this verse specifies. All Christians must pass through the knowledge of God to come to the place where they behave like him. It's not really a surprise, is it? Although just knowing about God will not in itself guarantee godliness, after all there are plenty of atheists, for example, who know lots about about God but definitely don't exhibit much of his character, one thing we can be certain of is that ignorance of God will certainly result in ungodliness. Now the word that Peter uses here for knowledge is epignosis. And the addition of that epibit to the word normally used for knowledge, gnosis, it makes it bigger and deeper. It points to a more profound level of knowledge than a person would just have from holding information about something or somebody. It's a lot more than just having a set of encyclopedias. This deeper level of insight will only come from a combination of both experience and knowledge. Let's say I wanted to get John Key to do something for me. Well, I know who he is, so I can write to him, but I don't really know what sort of man he is or what will appeal to him, so I suspect that all will happen, if I'm lucky, is some kind of polite reply from a junior assistant to the deputy secretary. Let's say, though, that I went right through school with him. In fact, I've been one of his close friends ever since, and I can walk into his office and say, Hi, John, can you help me with this? I think it's obvious which one will work, isn't it? Yet too many Christians are content to let their knowledge and experience of God rest at the very most superficial levels. They don't ever pick up their Bibles or books written about Scripture, and they rarely spend any time at prayer. Why do they find themselves struggling with a tendency towards ungodly behavior, I wonder? Does this describe you? What will you do about it? Remember this verse uses the word all. All things are given to us through knowledge. We aren't going to get anything from any other source. And especially, definitely, are not trying at all. So, do you want to be godliness? Sorry, do you want to be godly? Well, godliness is just another way of saying that you are living as the new man. Well, here are a few suggestions about how we might do stuff that will help us to begin to live like that. And I've 
stuck them all in your broadsheet. So hopefully you can look at those later. So the first thing is, read. But don't be wasting your time on fluff. Above all else, read God's word. But in a structured way, read through it. Don't have at it dashing here and there as the whim takes you. Read to get a grasp of the whole story. Not just parts. Because picking at parts is just going to lead you to wrong theology. And reading the whole story means reading the Old Testament too. It's there for a purpose. As well as your Bible, read rich doctrinal books that meet these criteria. Firstly, they must have a high view of Scripture, and that is to say that they believe Scripture to be authentic, the inspired Word of God. They state that Scripture is accurate and inerrant. The Bible is truthful in every part. You know, if we want to snip off and modify bits that we don't like, then we may as well just chuck the whole thing out of the window. Lastly, these books are, say that Scripture is authoritative. And that means that a high view of Scripture demands submission to its absolute authority. And I found a beautiful, beautiful description that sums up such a view. And, and I'm sure some of you will have read this before. Okay? The Bible contains the mind of man, so the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good the design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you in life, will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Books worth reading also have a high view of God. He is creator, eternal, and sovereign. He is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God, yet unique in character. Father as the head, Jesus as Saviour, and Holy Spirit as Helper. Each is acknowledged for their special part and worthy of praise and glory as God. Books worth reading have a high view of gospel. and That is to say that they have a right view of sin. All humans are sinners and unable to save themselves. As such, they are worthy of holy God's condemnation and deserve punishment. And God's judgment for sin is death, both physical and spiritual. They have 
a right view of self. Recognition of personal sin should result in us having the right attitude to ourselves. We recognize how wretched and unimportant we really are. And this stands in very stark contrast, contrast to what the world teaches us about pride. What does scripture say? Romans 12.3 For I say, through the, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. For the Christian, Self-esteem is replaced by self-denial. It is no longer I that liveth, but Christ who liveth in me. We will look for books that have a right view of salvation. And salvation is a very great deal more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card or some kind of heavenly insurance. It is the fruit of unmerited love, mercy and grace and received by confession of the mouth that Jesus is Lord, and belief in the heart that he was raised from the dead. So we need to read. The second thing is that we need to ponder. We need to take time to consider what we have read. It isn't any good to just tick Bible reading off the list like we do for so many things in a busy day. Slow down. Take time to, to think about the Bible, to chew it over. Ask questions, keep a journal. Let yourself be humbly troubled by puzzling things and keep coming back to them until you have the answer because the deepest insights come from following those hard things through. Next, you can discuss, be part of a small group that cares passionately about the truth. Not one of these groups that just likes to talk and raise problems and scandal, but a group that believes that there are biblical answers to biblical problems and where each person, each member feels secure enough to be open with what they do and don't understand. Fourthly, we can pray. We must pray. And there are three main ways that we can talk to God and all of them should be practiced regularly together in order to have a balanced and effective prayer life. If we never spend time talking to him, then we're going to miss out on a very important and powerful source of that epignosis. And I know it's a bit obvious, but it's important to say here that good prayer allows time for both speaking and listening. Yeah, you know the old thing, two ears, one mouth? These three ways are that we can meet together with other believers to pray together for corporate, personal and others' needs. We can set aside and we must set aside a specific time each day to pray privately in a structured way. And thirdly, we can make arrow prayers, one-liners if you like, as we go through the day. Thank you, Lord, for that beautiful tree. Thank you, Lord, for finding me a parking place. Lord. Help me to behave in this meeting in a way 
that will honor you. And lastly, and very importantly, act. The value of all this reading and pondering and discussing and praying and helping us to become more and more like the new man will be dramatically reduced if we do not use them as a springboard for action. Act on what you read. Act on what you ponder over. Act on what you discuss. And act on what you pray about. Moment to moment we face a thousand little choices every day. In each of them, there is the possibility to either act like the old and corrupt man or to make what would be initially at least a deliberate choice and put on the new. The first, that old man is our habit and he is not going to be displaced without some effort. But if we are committed and faithful, we will definitely see progress over time. We will see that old man put off and the new one put on. But we shouldn't imagine or be disappointed about this being a thing that won't happen overnight. We need to persist. We may fail, but we must and we can try again. Because we are living in the generosity of God's gracious forgiveness. Which gives us the space to stumble and fall and get up and do it again until with his help we succeed. Now this has been quite a long sermon but it covers some very valuable ground. Thank you for your attention. I hope that these few suggestions will be helpful in moving towards a life that is rich in a new man. I imagine that not one of the things I have said is really new. None of them is revolutionary and none of them is especially difficult. Yet, we all fail in them in some way. I pray that none of us would be content to let it rest there. I pray that all of us will commit our every effort to the daily privilege of putting on that new man that we have been so graciously given. Let us pray. Father, we are so used to living with our old man That's the dirty clothes we often put on every morning. But Lord, today you have revealed to us the power and potential and possibility of the new man. Lord, I pray that that would not be something that we would forget and tomorrow morning get up and put on the same old man. Lord, stir us. Give us the vision of the new man. May your Holy Spirit be at our side, reminding us all through the day about the new man. You have given to us so wonderfully and so graciously. And Lord, I pray that that new man, as we put it on, would be a powerful witness to you and would bring you 
the glory that you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.